listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. It's a grand slam. I'm telling you. Welcome to something that we don't know what we're calling it yet, the Over the Monster podcast slash the Red Sea podcast slash a podcast with no name. I don't really know what we're calling it yet, but this is Matt Collins. I am with Jake Devereaux. Uh, We are going to be doing um, this unnamed podcast once a week, so Jake will still be doing the Red Sea with Keaton on Sundays, and then... uh, I guess on Mondays that comes out, right? Um, yeah. And then Jake and myself will be doing this. I think we're going to do it on Tuesdays, but we haven't really totally nailed that down yet. But we will be with you once a week. So what's up, Jake? I am hosting. I already hate it, but we're going to see how this works. <laughs> uh, not too much, man. I'm just I'm just pumped to um, to be getting some semblance of real baseball today. Um, you know, the, the Sox play the Twins. Um, or the Blue Jays um, for two games. Team without a home, a team, a homeless team, um, for for two days. And I know that it's it's not going to be really real baseball because, as you alerted me to before we got on here, the Yankees and Phillies like are giving each other extra outs and stuff right now. But you know, I'm I'm at least excited to see a team that is not the Red Sox lining up across from the Red Sox pitchers. Yeah, I'm excited to be able to watch it on TV rather than having to like open up a window on my phone or my laptop. Um, yeah, it's the worst. So that'll be nice. Um, and it, I'm super interested to see how Nesson's broadcast is going to be. Because I feel like nothing against Nesson. This is not anything personal with them. I feel like it's going to be pretty bad. <laughs> I don't know what your expectation is for the broadcast, but I just feel like it's going to be a mess at first. Well, if anything uh, that we've already seen is an indication of it, some of the the roughness that they might have. Like I remember watching the ESPN KBO broadcasts oh, when they first came out, and they were awful. Yeah. Um. And so I think that there are probably going to be some similar kinks that need to be worked through, especially because it seems like they're not actually going to be there. They're going to be doing yeah, it from a remote a studio. studio. Yeah. Um, and then I have no idea what the hell a remote sideline reporter does. Um, yeah. I'm, so that's going to be interesting, too. I'm kind of picturing it like the uh, digital shorts on SNL. It's going to be like Aaron Austin <laughs> doing stuff like that. Uh, but Jake, other Jake uh, Caustic talked to uh, Joe Buck about this the other day. We published that on the site on Tuesday. But uh, Joe Buck had a really good point that I hadn't thought of, that announcers are used to seeing everything from the angle behind the plate. And mm. I'm assuming the ca- camera angle is going to be the same, so they're going to be looking at the same thing as us uh, from center field. So I think there's going to be a lot of misjudged fly balls the first couple of weeks, which is going to be both <laughs> infuriating and kind of funny. Yeah, overreactions to fly balls are one of my favorite things about being in person uh, oh, at baseball there. games. Yeah. The crowd, they're always up like it's a home run for every routine every ball fly that ball. In there, yeah, that's one of those things that you don't really see on TV as much. But yeah, when you're at a game, you realize it's literally every time the ball's in the air, a good chunk of the crowd gets excited. And who said baseball was boring, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so I think we can get into it now. Um, so you guys recorded uh, fairly early on Sunday. And that was before the Colin McHugh news came out, right? Guys... Right, yeah. So that came out in the evening, and we had recorded it at 10 a.m., so we yeah, couldn't so react. usually how it goes. So we can talk about that now. That was, that's kind of the big news of the week. Uh, Colin McHugh, obviously, uh, signed by the Red Sox pretty shortly before baseball got paused back in March. Um, he was always supposed to miss a few months at the beginning of the season. They were hoping to get him back in a normal season, like late June-ish. Um, but apparently things just weren't healing right with his elbow. He was still going to miss the beginning of this season, even with it starting in late July. Um, kind of seemed like the best case scenario was that he'd be back for like the final three or four weeks of the year. And even that 
didn't seem to be a sure thing. Um, also, with his deal being so small, he signed for the minimum. He had already gotten all of his guaranteed money uh, from the advance that the league gave the players way back in March. So his only chance at getting some extra money was with incentives, and given the fact that there was no guarantee that he was going to make it back anyways, he decided to opt out of the season. Um, so I guess we'll start, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you have the same answer as me, but this isn't really something that you have a problem with McHugh doing, mm-hmm. personally. No, not at all. Yeah, I, I, I think if I was him, I'd have done the exact same thing. There's just very little to be gained for McHugh, who now gets to go home and spend time with his family and avoid the risks of this and rehab correctly and um, you know maybe sign an identical uh, incentive-laden deal next year. Or if he looks great uh, rehabbing through the winter, maybe he gets to sign even a better deal. And you know it's it's not like this situation with the Red Sox was so attractive. Um, you know, like joining a, a club that expects to compete for the World Series or something like that, that that you would do that to even cling to the last three weeks of the season and, and see what you could do to help the team down the stretch. So uh, I don't blame McHugh at all. I would probably have made the same choice. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I wouldn't shut the door um, on him coming back to the Red Sox even after the season. Um, his wife, Ashley, is fairly active on Twitter, and she – kind of put out a little bit of a statement uh, right after the news came out. And part of it was just talking about how they liked their time at the Red Sox. I mean, it was obviously very short. They didn't actually get to play in any games. He didn't even get to play in any spring training games. But, I mean, they worked with the front office and they worked with the coaches. They worked with the trailers and their trainers. Um, and it seemed like it was a positive relationship. So um, I would say there's a decent chance of them being able to work something out again for next year. But as far as this year goes, um, I mean, how big of a deal do you think this is for the 2020 roster? Um, I think that knowing what we now know about McHugh's health, that the idea of McHugh was a lot more attractive than what we were actually going to get from McHugh from on-the-field production, um, considering how long it was taking him to kind of come back from this injury. So... I actually don't think that it has a massive effect on the roster. If he were, you know, a fully healthy, fully capable Colin McHugh who could potentially have stepped into to one of those starting pitcher roles that are going to be so hard to fill effectively, then yeah, I think it would have been a huge blow. But unfortunately, it seems like there was really no chance of it being that. So I don't think that the on-the-field baseball team is going to miss that much from him not being there. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at too. Um Back in March, I was pretty psyched about the idea of Colin McHugh just because he's kind of a Swiss Army knife, and there were a bunch of different ways they could have used him, and I thought with the creativity of High Bloom sort of living over everything, he could have been a big help. But yeah, I mean, as this season's gotten closer, and it's been pretty apparent that he was never going to be part of this team. Um, I mean, I hadn't even really considered him for any sort of role like when I'm trying to piece together the roster in my head, so... Um, I mean, it would have been nice to have that potential help in September, but I think you can still look for guys like a Tanner Houck or a Brian Mata or somebody kind of coming out of nowhere from the prospect pool and maybe coming up. Um, maybe McHugh probably had a better chance of being that guy than someone like Houck or Mata, but I don't know how much more likely he would have been. Um, but I mean, if he was healthy, what what did you see him doing? Because I always thought that was the most interesting part of McHugh is like, what exactly he would be doing on the team. I always thought that if McHugh was healthy, that he would be good enough to be in the rotation full-time, um, just because the Red Sox just don't have a lot of guys who are uh, available to fill in there. You know, all things healthy, you would have had Erod, Nathan Evaldi, Martin Perez, and then you would have been looking to Colin McHugh to fill a rotation spot behind those guys. Um, I don't think that they had anybody else that would have been better in that role. Conceivably, he also could have been used in the same way that the Rays have used uh, Yanni Chirinos and Ryan Yarborough as sort of a follower to an opener. I think he would have been really good in that that role as well. But I think what this does for me is it just kind of underlines the, the extreme weakness that the Red Sox have on this roster in terms of starting pitching. They don't really have any guys who are coming up in the minors who are fully ready and uh, honestly... I know there were so many detractors of him while he was here, but 
I mean, Rick Porcello would look amazing on this roster right now. I mean, Rick Porcello would arguably be the ace of the staff right now. I mean, I know Nathan Volley yeah. has just an absurd amount of helium right now, but I think in terms of, like, safety, I would not push back very hard against anybody saying Porcello would be the ace. And I mean, I'm sure people remember I was never exactly the high man on Porcello, but, yeah, this rotation is bad enough that I would probably call him the number one. Yeah, the amount of shit that was thrown at Rick Porcello, and now all of a sudden people would love to have him. Well, I mean, that was kind of the issue with the whole offseason, though. It was like, I didn't yeah. really want them to re-sign Rick Porcello, but that was with the idea that they would sign somebody else. I, I preferred Porcello <laughs> over literally nothing. And unfortunately, we got the literally nothing part of that until they signed huh. Zach Godley, who was released by the Tigers, which pretty much tells you all you need to know. The Red Sox number three starter right now uh, could not make the 2020 Detroit Tigers. By the way, you know, Keaton, who we also podcast with here, is still firm in his stance that he would not want Rick Porcello even now. And he's also the one who hated Clay Buckles. So I think that we need to maybe teach our man to appreciate these uh, these more volatile starters, Matt. I don't think he sees the beauty in these these up and down guys. I don't understand how you could not want Rick Porcello right now. Hell, I'd want Clay Buckles right now, too. <laughs> I would love to everybody. have Clay Buckles yeah. straight now. They, they have Brian <laughs> Weber and Brian Johnson are yeah. 40% of their rotation. Yeah, it's not good. It's not what you want. <laughs> no, and that doesn't even account for the fifth spot, which is just a giant question. Well, I think those are 4-5 or five right now, I would think. I, right now, my assumption is that it's uh, Avaldi, Perez, Godley... Weber, Johnson, whatever okay, order you so want to put those last three in. I don't think there's a huge difference between them. So we think that right now Godley is kind of ready to step into that role and, and be a starter? Yeah, I mean, he had been with the Tigers before, and I mean, he maybe he'll be a bulk guy after an opener, um, but I kind of consider them as part of the, anybody who fills that role as part of the rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've said before I'd like to see like the last two spots just piggyback, so I mean, Matt Hall and Chris Mazer, whoever else you want to put in that mix, Colton Brewer even, they like him for like two or three innings at a time. I mean, I think it's going to get really weird, and I don't think it's going to work, but I think it's definitely going to get really weird. Yeah, I I think it's going to get super weird super fast, and uh, I'm kind of here for it, though, because this is going to be a very weird year in which I'm expecting nothing, so I'm kind of embracing the chaos, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of... The way that I'm looking at the pitching staff this year is like a giant kind of scouting experiment for the team to kind of identify who they have and who's worth investing in for future years and to see what they have. Because I expect them to run through more arms than maybe we've ever seen, Uh, certainly more than we've ever seen used in a 60-game stretch Um, and, and gathering as much information as they can. So... Hopefully they can kind of invest in this team in the off season a little bit and, and make some changes and, and keep what works and get rid of what doesn't. Because there's a lot of fat that could potentially be cut from this pool of pitchers that they have right now. Yeah, I'm with you. I think this is just going to be a giant evaluation period. And I mean, even in a smaller sense, the 30-man, the two weeks with 30-man roster, I think is going to be that. And then the two weeks after that with 28, I think it's going to be all evaluation. I don't know how excited I am for it. I think it's going to be interesting, but... I mean, the first time they fall behind like nine to two after two and a half innings. I don't know how much exci- how much excitement there's going to be in my life <laughs> at that point. Hey, you know what? I've I've got this like deep appreciation for live sports now that um, that we haven't had it. So I think even in terrible baseball games this year, I'm just going to be feeling blessed to to be watching it. Yeah, I'll be feeling blessed that I'll probably have an FBA game on the background of my laptop. Um, hope so anyways so the rotation obviously is the focus of this team and it's just terrible it's what's likely going to hold them out of the playoffs Um, but all that focus is kind of taken away from what the lineup is is looking like and it seemed like on monday um that was sort of the topic that was going around camp that day every beat writer was talking about the lineup Uh, everybody was asking Ron Renneke about the lineup, and I think the structure of the lineup 
seems pretty interesting to me. There's a few interesting questions. So I think we'll start right off at the top. This seemed to be the question that most of the beats were asking of Renneke. Um, who do you think leads off? And do you have the same leadoff hitter against lefties and righties, or do you switch it up based on handedness? So I think that Andrew Benintendi is going to lead off, but I don't think that that is the right decision. Um, I would personally have Andrew Benintendi hit where Mitch Moreland is hitting or is expected to hit in the fifth spot in the lineup. I'd rather have him behind the two ready bats in Xander and J.D. Martinez, and I know that that gives him a little less exposure and fewer plate appearances. But Andrew Benintendi looked very uncomfortable in the leadoff spot last year for for a long stretch. Um, I think that he has a better slugging percentage uh, or at least an X slugging percentage, the bat X, which is a projection system that kind of takes into account not only normal projections, but um, StatCast-based projections have him for a much healthier slugging percentage than he actually hit for last season. So I think there's more thump there. I would love to see Verdugo in the, the leadoff spot. I know that that's a lot of pressure for a player who's 24 years old um, in his first uh, stint with the team, but I think that ultimately that's a better role for him because he's shown really no handedness platoons, uh, platoon splits uh, at the top. Uh, he can hit righties and lefties. Um, he has just this super advanced approach at the plate, um, and he's just steady. He seems to kind of like have a plan uh, at such a young age, and I think that Andrew Benintendi, while he has a lot of those same traits, I'm not sure if he's as well suited for it as Verdugo, who I just think is kind of the perfect prototypical leadoff guy. Um, that's kind of where I'm at, but I do think they'll go with Benintendi. Yeah, I think... I think Verdugo's interesting. Uh, I also think they're going to go with Benintendi. I think I would go with Benintendi myself. Um, I think Verdugo can work his way into that role. I don't know that I would throw him out there from day one, Um, especially since, by all accounts, he's been pretty bad in camp so far. He's hitting everything into the ground. Um, That's according to the media who have been there. Um, So I think, given how poorly he's played over the last couple of weeks. I don't know that they would want to throw him out there in the leadoff spot already. And I don't think I would either. I mean, he already kind of has the pressure of having to replace Mookie Betts. I don't know that I'd throw him yeah, in the leadoff spot sucks. to kind of add that to the spotlight. Um, so I would go Benintendi. I would definitely go Benintendi against righties. I think there is a little bit of an interesting question of whether or not you do it against lefties as well. Um, his platoon splits haven't been consistently bad throughout his career. I'm not overly concerned it about him against lefties, but he's definitely worse. Um, the issue is the Red Sox don't have a right-handed option. Um, Renneke was talking about it a little bit yesterday, and he threw out Jose Peraza and Kevin Pillar as options as a leadoff batter against righties, or against lefties. If Kevin Pillar ever bats lefty, or bats uh, leadoff, I will lose my mind. <laughs> Kevin Pillar just, he's, that's not what kind of hitter he is. He's barely a 300 on base guy if he gets to that point um against lefties in his career is on base it's like 310 it's just pilar has his uses he's a nice right-handed bat to kind of give the outfielders they have an all lefty outfield so um he's a nice guy to give them spell and he play defense and provide a little speed and he's got a little pop sometimes he should not be batting leadoff peraz is a little bit better uh leadoff is on base against lefties he's a little bit better than benintendi's in his career um, but honestly, I would just stick with Benintendi there. Uh, I don't think the other options are better enough, and you also just get Benintendi more at-bats later in the game when the lefty's out of the game. Uh, so I wouldn't get too fancy with it. I think we're going to see a lot of mixing and matching and hoping that somebody steps up, but I would just keep it simple and keep Benintendi there uh, the whole time. Yeah, and I think that's probably the correct move. I, I do think that if... If you're Ron Renneke and there is any interest in eventually grooming Verdugo to be in that leadoff spot, that it might be an interesting solution to have him lead off against lefties because, like I said before, Verdugo, in the sample size that we have of him and in what he's done in the minor leagues, really hasn't shown that split. And in fact, over 70 games, 124 plate appearances, or 133 plate appearances, he's batting 306 against lefties with a 106 WRC plus. Um, so I think he could handle it and that might be a way to kind of give him 
that exposure while not giving him that exposure all the time. Yeah, that would definitely, like, Verdugo just in general in the leadoff side, that would be something I would be open to later in the year. Um, yeah. If he's playing well over the first, like, three weeks or so of the season, then I'd be all for moving him up. Um, but I would just take a wait-and-see approach with him. Um, I just think the team in general um, and, and fans of the team, as we watch more of Verdugo, I think we're going to be pleased. I, I do feel bad uh, for the kid that like he has to replace Mookie Betts, who is just such an otherworldly player and one of the greatest players ever to play for the Red Sox. Um, but, man, Verdugo is a really good player in his own right. Yeah, and I mean, I think... I've said this before. I think him and Benintendi are extremely similar players. Um, Benintendi hasn't totally lived up to his potential, so we'll see if Verdugo can kind of um, take that package to a higher level. But I think just in terms of style, I think they are extremely similar. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, but then after, so after the leadoff spot, two, three, four, I would assume is Devers, Bogarts, Martinez in some order. Um, it seems like they want to do Rafael Devers hitting second. Or is that what you would do? Um, I don't know. I might flip Devers in bogey, honestly, to get the righty-lefty uh, thing going because, you know, you can sandwich him in between Benny and Devers there. And I think that Bogarts is probably the best hitter on your team right now. Uh, and I would like Maybe. to have the thump of of Devers behind him. Um I don't really care that much because I think that Devers, Bogarts, JD are kind of so good. I know we that JD had pronounced platoon splits last year and we we talked about that a little bit uh during the season, but like those guys all can hit anything. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. The only reason I I I would agree with you. If I was a manager, I would have I would go Benintendi, Bogarts, uh, Devers, Martinez. Um, the only reason I have even a little bit, I don't know if passion is the right word, but I care a little bit about this is just because it seems like the reason that Renicky wanted to put Pilar or Peraza in the leadoff spot was because he didn't want to have two lefties um, in the top two spots. And it seems like the much simpler solution to that would just be to flip Bogarts and Devers. And I agree with you. I don't know that Bogarts is the best hitter on the team. Um, I think Martinez still may have a claim to that. But I do think Bogarts right now is a better hitter than Devers. And so, even I mean, it's not a huge difference. And like you said, I'm not super... If Devers is in the two-hole, I'm not going to lose my mind about it. But I think Bogarts is the guy that I would want in the two-hole. And and it's just an added bonus that you get to split up the lefties and righties, which is seemingly something that they're at least thinking about. Yeah, and to kind of add to that too, um, I like Xander better in the two-hole in theory because he is such a great base runner as well. Um, you know, having him be on the bases and able to make more of those decisions that can impact a game and, and be in front of those two big thumpers in the back, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And and also, I just I think that this time has been beneficial probably to J.D. Martinez as well, this layoff, because he's such a professional hitter. I'm sure he was working on his craft down in Miami while everything was going on, but you know, just to be able to get a little bit of time off to maybe work on the maintenance stuff in his back uh, at his age, you know, 32, almost 33 now, he's got to have benefited from, from some of that, and we could see a really sharp, really good J.D. Martinez this year. Yeah, and also, um, I think Chris Smith of Mass Live brought this up. Um, it's going to be hot. The weather's going to be hot right away. And mm. I mean, obviously that plays well for the power. So, yeah, I could see Martinez being an absolute monster this year, especially with the potential to opt out after the season. Um, and little, I don't think he's going to, though, right? I don't think he's going to either, but that could still yeah. be something in the back of his head. Yeah. Um, so moving down the lineup a little bit, in terms of position battles, it seems like the most interesting one, to me at least, is the right side of the infield. How how would you split it up, and how do you think it's going to get split up? Um, I think you're going to see Moreland against righties. I mean, that seems like the, the easiest solution, right? That's yeah. what we've seen in the past, and... Uh, I kind of expect to see that until Moreland proves that he can't do that. Um, but I think that the way that Renicky has been talking about Peraza, 
um, we're going to see a lot of Peraza. Um, I think Peraza could be close to an everyday player, and I think that Chavis might end up being the guy who, who doesn't get that time. And, you know, I, I'm just not sure. I know that you're a bigger Chavis guy than I am, and I've been kind of skeptical on him, but I just don't know where his time is going to necessarily come from if Moreland is hitting effectively. Um, I think it could be just a left-handed uh, guy uh, against at first base. Yeah, I think or, uh, I think you're right. Um, I would like to see him get more time at second base than Peraza, but I agree with you. I think it's going to be um, Peraza getting more of the time. I mean, against lefties, Chavis is going to play first base. Peraza is going to play second base pretty much every time. Uh, that seems pretty much set in stone. I agree with you that Moreland, at least to start, is going to play pretty much every game against righties at first. And so it's just a matter of how they split time at second base. And right now, I kind of feel like it's going to be like 75-25 in favor of Peraza. And I don't love it because I just feel like Peraza's game, I mean, they're just totally diametrically opposed as players. And Peraza, I just don't love the style that... Or I, I actually kind of do love the style, but it just feels so risky because everything that he does is based upon luck. I mean, he doesn't walk, he doesn't strike out, he doesn't hit for power. He just hits ground balls and line drives, and you hope that they find holes. And I mean, he's had a couple of years where he's been very good, and they have found holes, and he's had a couple of years where he's been below replacement level because he just everything goes to a fielder. So um, I think if he starts off cold, Chavis will get that chance, but. At the end of the day, I think Chavis is going to have to make the most of whatever opportunities he gets, whether that's starting against lefties or taking, giving days off to Devers or J.D. Martinez or coming in late in games as a pinch hitter. Um, I think he's going to have to earn his role on the team. And I don't, I love that at first, but the more I think about it in terms of long-term development for Chavis, making him earn it and not just kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt to start this year might ultimately be the best thing for his development yeah i could see that um i think the other thing that i find interesting about peraza's game too is that as a right-handed bat in fenway park you mentioned the line drive heavy kind of speed-based approach that he has he kind of relies on having a good babip too uh, to have success i think he could use the green monster a little bit and i think that could be an interesting part of his game more of a doubles guy in fenway park and that might be something that they're looking at. Um, but all that this does to me is it sort of magnifies the fact that Chavis isn't a perfect fit for this roster right now. And I don't know how Bloom thinks of him. Um, if Bloom thought he was the answer at second, he probably wouldn't have traded for Peraza. So it makes me think that um, Chavis is going to be a piece eventually that the Red Sox look to package to go get pitching in it. I, I kind of haven't come off that stance that he's sort of the most tradable guy on this roster. He might be, but he's also, I don't know. I mean, I feel like if you, he's Bobby Dalbeck. I mean, they're not the same player, but they are, they're a similar profile. They are play similar roles. So I guess it just comes down to which one you like more. I'm still not totally sure how I feel about Dalbeck uh, altogether, but I would definitely agree that there's not room for both of them. I think, Probably yeah. by the time spring training rolls around next year, one of them will be gone. And I guess if I had to pick right now, I probably would guess that Chavis is the guy, but I could also see... I mean, I, I totally would not rule out Chavis just getting monster hot to start the year and just hitting, like, 10 home runs in the first month or something and just going nuts. Yeah, I wouldn't rule out a hot Chavis either. I just think that when you look at the roster... Dahlbeck is just such a more seamless fit because he does have the size. He's six foot four to play uh, at first base. I think they're a little skeptical of Chavis playing first base at his height. Um, I think he's a far better defender at third base. He's more athletic than Chavis is. Um, and I think you could also maybe put him in the outfield too if eventually the roster construction calls for that. See, I think so, Chavis is a better a fit in the outfield, personally. Maybe it's just because I can't picture somebody as big as Bobby Dalbeck running around in the outfield. Um, and I might be selling him short there, but I've al- I've always felt like they should have they should have been giving Chavis some time in the outfield, at least in left field. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, left field at Fenway Park. Right? It's just a matter of learning it. Yeah. yeah. Manny Rivera is like, okay up there. Yeah, he has a great place. <laughs> tells you all you need to know. <laughs> um, so I guess going down a few more of these battles, um, or I guess with Kevin Pillar, we talked about it a little bit, um, just kind of quickly, what do you think his role is going to be? Is he going to be, do you think he's going to be platooning just with Jackie Bradley or just with Verdugo or just with Benintendi or if he's going to be kind of giving all of those guys a day off against lefties because, I mean, they have the all-lefty starting outfield. So I'm kind of interested to see how what you think that they're going to do with that. I think he is going to almost exclusively platoon with Jackie Bradley Jr., but on days that Jackie is in the lineup uh, playing against a righty, I think that Pilar could potentially also spell one of the other outfielders, even though it's not a great matchup for him against a righty. I think he could just be a day off guy uh, for those players. But you know, looking at the the splits over their careers, Bradley has a 96 WRC plus versus righties and 80 WRC plus against lefties. Pilar is a career 103 WRC plus against lefties and 81 against righties. So they're basically the exact same player, just against opposite handedness. Um, so I think that that's kind of the most the most apparent usage of Pilar. Yeah, I think you're right. I think most a majority of his time is going to be uh, spelling Bradley, although I do think he's going to be filling in for the other guys. And I think the other part of it that um, hasn't really been brought up a lot, but I think we're going to see it. I hate it, but I think we're going to see a decent amount of J.D. Martinez in the outfield against lefties yeah. as well. And I don't get that. I don't like it, but... Um, and then, I mean, if Dahlbeck comes up, you can put Dahlbeck at first and Chavis at DH and kind of get those righties going. It's not what I would do. I would want to keep J.D. Martinez out of the outfield as much as possible, but, I mean, we've seen over the last couple of years they like to put him in the outfield. I don't... Don't ask me why, but it's what he likes, and I'm assuming they just want to keep him happy. Yeah, just for his health purposes, oh, I yeah, just would not him. risk that yeah. at all. The guy with just, back it, problems, I want him yeah. moving as little as possible. Yeah, that makes no sense to me. I hope I hope I'm wrong, but I I think we're gonna see it. Even even with the fact that we have some added guys who are legitimate outfielders, I mean Peraza can play the outfield fine. Sue Lin can play the outfield. There's just so many options on this roster of guys who can play the outfield. Yeah, Yaro Munoz, if he makes it, I mean, there's just, there's a lot. Yeah, I I hope so, but I don't know. It just, maybe Martinez has come back, but he's always made it known that he doesn't just want to be in DH, for better or for worse. Somebody needs to sit him down and have the talk. Buddy, we're paying you 20 plus million (laughs) to hit. Just hit. Yeah, that's it. Um, so we've already kind of talked about who we think makes the rotation. Were you, did you think it was going to play out a different way other than, uh, Evaldi, Perez, Godley, Weber, and Johnson in some order? No. (laughs) And those, those were the, the guys, um, yeah. And I just think they're so committed to running through these sort of quad A type options that they have before they tap into what they have with the kids in, you know, whether that's uh, bringing up a Tanner Houck or a Brian Mata at some point. And, and to be fair, I don't believe Tanner Houck is a starter either. I think Mata is probably not ready. Um, so I don't think we were likely to get any of the sexier options here. No, but I mean, I don't think I with you that I don't think Tanner Houck is a starter. Um, but I don't think Ryan Weber or Brian Johnson are starters either. That's very fair. Yeah, I mean, you give Hauk the ability to turn over a lineup twice, yeah. and I think he can do it just as good as those two guys. I think Kyle Hart's a name that we should uh, be starting to learn a little bit more, too. Kyle Hart, um, sort of interesting, very boring style of pitcher. He's sort of like a Brian Johnson type, but I think he'll he'll at least get a chance at some point this year. He's a little more polished and I think ready for the majors than some of the more exciting prospects. Yeah, he had a really good year last year as well in the minor leagues. Yeah, he's kind of got that stuff that can fool minor leaguers. He's very crafty. I mean, he's just your prototypical lefty without big stuff, but he knows how to mix it. and He gets solid movement where I could see him kind of his first time going through major league lineups with guys that I've never seen him before having a little bit of success and then 
thing sort of bought him out, sort of like Hector Velasquez, um, his little short career trajectory with Boston. I could see Kyle Hart playing out in a similar way. Yeah, and he's already 27, almost 28. Yeah, he's uh, he'll be 28 in November. Yeah, um, and I see him kind of coming up, and I, I think the best case for Kyle Hart is kind of pitching between like a 4.0, 4.2 ERA um, with a middling whip and kind of getting you four to five innings, Yeah, uh, which in this role would be awesome. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think what you want. I think best case for Kyle Hart be like a number five you throw him out there every five days yeah he might be league average and just hope for five innings and you're staying in the game every day which is it, i mean that's valuable it can get you to yeah. the postseason for sure and then probably don't make the postseason roster but you get him there um yeah so then moving on to the bullpen there's a few open spots and there's just so many guys that are basically the same pitcher um but, so I see Workman, Barnes, Walden, Henry, Brazier, and Bryce um, as sort of the locks right now. That gives them six. I think they're going to carry um, ten relievers. So are there any guys, you don't have, I mean, I don't know if you have four to fill it out or just any guys that you think seem like locks or you think will be there, have a good chance of being there besides those six? Yeah. Um, I think that the two lefties right now in Jeffrey Springs and Josh Osich are uh, ads that they'll make because they're, they might not have uh, Josh Taylor uh, right off the bat. Yeah, I'm assuming um, Taylor's not going to be ready. That's Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. So I think that those two guys are, are valuable lefties for the pen. I've liked what I've seen from Chris Mazza when I've seen him. Um, so he's another one that I would add to that mix. And then I think we talked about this guy already. It's another lefty, but Matt Hall, just to have that versatility, <clears throat> a guy who's a little bit more stretched out and can go multiple innings. Um, those would be my picks. So three lefties plus Maza being added to this group. I, th- I have mostly the same as you. Um, I have Springs, Osich, and Hall. Um, the only difference I have is uh, Colton Brewer over Chris Mazza. Um, Brewer, I think. Mazza, I feel like, is more of just your typical long man, sort of like the Brian Johnson, Hector Velasquez role of before, and I think Matt Hall already kind of fills that. Um, I think Brewer mm. can go multiple innings. They've been willing to use him two or three innings at a time, but they can also use him um, for one inning. And, I mean, if you remember when they got him last year, um, he was sort of like a spin rate darling. and mm-hmm. So I think there's still a little bit of upside with him. Um, it seems like all of the talk around him has always been positive. So I think he's going to get a chance. But I also think this bullpen, might, just like the rotation, we're going to see a lot of moving pieces throughout the season with these guys. Yeah, I do like that idea quite a bit, too. You're right. It might be a little redundant to have both Hall and Mazza. Um both kind of filling that long roll. Um, yeah, I, I like the idea of Brewer, especially because I feel like he can go two or three innings if you need him to. Look, they're going <laughs> to, let's be honest, they're going to need that with this yeah. rotation. They're going to need, um, carrying two long guys is not out of the question when you have Ryan Weber and Brian Johnson and Zach Godley and Martin Perez making up 80% of your rotation. It's just not great. Honestly, um, the big change I would make, and I know that you had included him on this, but I would flip, I would not have Heath Embry making this team, and I would have Brewer instead, and I would carry both of the long guys in Hall and Mazza. I just think Hembry's effectiveness is questionable, um, and I think that he doesn't go more than one inning almost at all, so he's not a guy who I would really They've value on this roster. At some points, but yeah, I... I would carry him. He, I've, we've seen him for a couple months at a time be very good. I'm not overly confident. I would have an extremely short leash. Um, but I I think they need somebody who can kind of maybe be that 6th, 7th inning guy. And as much as I don't think Henry can be that guy or will be that guy, I think he potentially could be. So at least until Taylor and or Darwin Hernandez already, I would give him a chance. But yeah, I mean, if he goes out there and has two bad outings in a row, 
uh, yeah, see you later. You're done. Um, but to start, yeah. I guess I'd give him a chance. I have a lot more confidence in seventh and later in like guys like Walden and, and Josh Taylor when he's healthy. Oh, for sure. I wouldn't put Hembry. I, I put Hembry in the uh, Ryan Frazier, Austin Bryce tier, and I might have both of those guys ahead of Hembry too, but I think those are the kind of guys that they're going to need to step up, especially with Taylor and Hernandez probably missing the start of the year. Yeah, and I, I also, just to be clear for the record, I like Bryce and uh, – and, um, What's his name? Brazier. Uh, Brazier. Yeah. Better than Hembry as well. Not great if you are behind the guy who Jake can't remember his name. Not, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, not this bullpen. Um, I, I just want to flip flip this on you a little bit and ask you a question about Brandon Workman. Yeah. Um, I'm actually very bullish on Workman, and I've seen a couple really interesting pieces in the offseason. We're obviously expecting a lot of regression from him, but there's – a lot of underlying things that Brandon Workman did extremely well last year, uh, limiting hard contact and the angle of the contact and things like that that make Brandon Workman very interesting. Uh, I think that he can lock down the closer's job for the entire year and you know make himself some money in the offseason. Um, but I was curious as to whether or not you think that he is safe in that role because he hasn't looked amazing so far in spring training or whatever we're calling this summer camp. Yeah, I'm in on Workman. Um, I'm in on the Workman-Barnes duo um, just in general. Um, I do think there are concerns with Workman. I do think Barnes is better. But, um, I mean, I talked about this all the time last year, and I'm still just absolutely fascinated by Brandon Workman and the way he pitches. Um, I mean, the guy has a middling fastball without that much movement. And it is an absolutely dominant pitch, one of the best fastballs in baseball, because he throws that big loopy curveball like 50-something percent of the time. I think it was like 54% of the time. Um, And it just makes that fastball look like it's 97 coming right into your hands. So as long as he's able to locate that curveball reasonably well, um, I'm confident in Brandon Workman. I certainly don't think we're going to see the results that we saw last year. I think everybody kind of knows. There's no way the home run rate's going to stay where it was. Uh, there's no way he's going to pitch to a sub-2 ERA with a walk rate of almost 6 per 9. Um, those things just don't happen, but just in general, I think he can stay the closer the whole year. I am expecting him to. Um, and like I said, I think him and Barnes at the back of that bullpen is a very exciting kind of duo. Um both in terms of their production and just the way that they pitch, both being those kind of curveball-heavy guys. I just like that. I think people kind of sleep on how ridiculous a year he had last year because the the walks were out of control. I mean, he had a 15.7% walk rate, but 121 batting average against and uh, 39 ERA minus for the year are among the better marks we've seen from a reliever ever. Um, That's... That's remarkable. Yeah, and, and he did it over seventy point seventy one point two innings. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, I mean, it's not it's not <clears> sustainable. <throat> he had a two oh nine BABIP. Uh, it's not going to happen again. He gave up, I think, one home run all season in a year where they were using a golf ball. Um, that's just not going to happen. But at the same time, he I don't have the numbers in front of me, but he was at the top or near the top of the list in terms of uh, soft contact rate and the lowest hard contact rate. Um, yeah. So while that stuff is not sustainable, I also wouldn't expect. I mean, I'm not looking for him to regress back to league average. I'm just looking to for him to regress back to planet Earth. Yeah, and and even if he he regresses back to like I don't know a mid 60s ERA minus, that's still an that's excellent player. Yeah, we take that yeah. every day. And, week. He, and the last two years, he was a 73 and a 69 ERA minus, and I think he's a better pitcher now. And I think that that fastball too. You, you remarked how it is kind of average in a lot of its aspects, but he's six foot five and gets excellent extension. So his his fastball does play up, and the fact that he can locate that pitch to set up his curveball makes the, the combination kind of work for him in a way that it wouldn't work for a lot of other guys. Oh, for sure. And he's willing to throw that curveball in any count, which, yeah, I mean, that's just a huge weapon. That's It's a lot easier said than done, especially with a curveball that moves as much as his. So. I mean, if you have a batter and you're you're in there always thinking about a little 79-mile-an-hour curveball 
and you're right, he's, you got this ginormous person throwing 93. That's looking 97, 98. It's just, it's really interesting. I absolutely love watching him pitch. Yeah, and, and also just one more thing before we close the book on him, but he basically took over as the closer. Um, I want to say it was like late June. Yeah, around um, the midway point. The, yeah, and from that point forward, so from June 25th until the end of the year last year, um, he had 14 saves um, with an ERA of 2.02, um, just absolutely dominating um, for that entire stretch. Yeah, and they, incredible. they needed that bad way, too. That uh, ninth inning was very shaky for about a month before that. Um, so he was a godsend. And yeah, I'm... I'm glad he's getting the chance right away, and I do um, expect him to hold that down for the whole year. Yeah, yeah, he's he's really cool. Um, so just before we get to listener questions, very quickly, just two more on the roster battles. Um, Ploiecki and Lucroy, you think they both make the roster? Yeah, initially I think they both get carried, and then playing time hopefully sorts out, um, you know, who they keep. I think so too. Radicke kind of moved off the the last couple of days he's saying no he's it's not a guarantee um so that'll be something to watch i do think ultimately that they're going to keep both of those guys to start though um and then i think if renicky makes the choice though it's going to be lucroy the way it seemed was that lucroy was the guy that could be on the way out um hmm. i mean it's all about the bat i i mean i've been over this a million times but i just i don't understand the appeal of lucroy over plucky but Defensively, Pilecki's clearly the choice. So if Lucroy's not hitting, and I'm not in camp, so I don't really know what he looks like right now, but if he, they're not confident in Lucroy's bat, there's really no reason for him to be there. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and then just the last couple spots on the bench. Um, it seems like it's Lynn and Arouse. Arouse? Mm-hmm. I'm still not nailing down that name. Um, <laughs> it's it, not a, not comfortable. No. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> you think it's them too, or you think Munoz sinks in there? I think it's them too for now. I think uh, Yairo Munoz is going to be kind of insurance uh, type of guy to come up if they have to waive Sue Lin at some point or like pass him through waivers or whatever. Um, I think that's the start. I'm with you, but I think with the little bit of intrigue now with the catchers, I think um, if they do only carry one of those two catchers, I would assume Munoz is going to get that open spot. Yeah, I think so too, because I don't think they're going to be super aggressive carrying 16 pitchers, because like we said, all these guys are pretty much interchangeable, so I don't think they're really going to care too much about swapping these guys out Yeah, yeah, willy-nilly all the time. Plus they have a lot of, like we were talking about, a lot of those guys that they're carrying can go multiple innings at a time. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm with you. I think they're going to go 15-15 to start the year. Um, so yeah, let's just get into some listener questions before we close this thing out. First one is from Matt Raby. Matt Raby. I don't want to say your name, Matt. Uh, how many games back of first at the trade deadline would the Red Sox need to be to justify trading one or more starting pitchers? Trading for one or more starting pitchers, yeah. Um, I think that the Red Sox oh, would funny. have to be... Um, I don't know. I don't know that there's a, an answer to this that is tied to how far back they have to be because I think that Heim Bloom will be looking to improve the 2021 club uh, with any trades that he makes. So I think that they'll all be forward looking and not just for this year. I don't think that there's any chance that the Red Sox really make unless they're in the lead or close to the lead, like maybe a game back for the lead at the trade deadline. I think that all of the moves that they make will be forward looking, not just for this season. Yeah, I've I'm fed of the opinion that I just don't think there's going to be really anything going on in the trade market this year. Um, but if there is, I think I'm with you. But it's kind of hard to answer this question because I'm trying to picture how the Red Sox would even get to a position where they are in first place at the deadline. And that would mean that some of their pitchers are stepping up. How many spots do they really have in the rotation? <laughs> Um, so I guess, yeah, I think if they're like tied for first place, maybe they look, but ultimately I just, I really don't think there's going to be a trade market at all this year. Yeah, probably not. There's too much weirdness. And I believe that the players have to be in the player pool to be traded. Um, it's just a mess. And the Red Sox, I mean, are they going to trade 
Jeter Downs or Jaron Duran or one of those guys. I mean, maybe they would, but I don't know. I don't think so. Not unless it's for the right yeah, arm. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know that that right arm is going to be available. So I just I wouldn't really be looking for any trades this year. It's just too weird of a situation. Shout out to Matt too. He's in our fantasy league. Oh, that is Matt. I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Thanks for the question, Matt. Um, so the next question is Jackson Posey. Uh, this is a strange question. I kind of hate it. But anyways, uh, <laughs> top Red Sox prospects are kidnapped, drugged, and dragged to over the monster HQ. No, probably by Jake. Maybe uh, you anonymously you anonymously interview each of them, and whoever says the OTM pod is the best gets to leave. Who gets out? And who is stuck scrubbing scrubbing virtual toilets? I don't understand this question. I kind of hate it. But you can answer it. I I don't understand it either. Um, I think that if any of the Red Sox prospects uh, listen to this podcast, they would they would say that it's the best. So yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of who we're like overly generous with and who we're overly overly ungenerous or not very generous with. I don't know. I mean, I guess I always been the vocal Jaron Duran guy, so I guess maybe he would say so. I don't know that I'm really super down on anybody. Maybe Jake Room. I think uh, Chavis would would have a little bit of trouble with me though. giving him shit about this. But yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, he, I don't know. I think Bobby Dahlbeck would be a big fan. I've always been a defender of the fact that I think he can hit good pitching. So I think Bobby Dahlbeck would like our podcast. Yeah, this is a weird question. I'm going to try and uh, forget about that one immediately. <laughs> Thanks, Jackson. I, I didn't really like that, Jackson. Um, Robbie Hyde asks, do you think there's a possibility that if the Red Sox are out of contention pretty early, Bloom will start shipping some guys out by the trade deadline? So sort of the reverse of that first question. Um, if the price is right, I think so. Um, because there is some areas of redundancy on this team. You know, we, we talked about it with Chavis and Dahlbeck, kind of, it's hard to imagine a scenario where they're carrying both of those guys for a long period of time. Um, if some of the Red Sox pitching, who is maybe a little bit on the older side or expiring, is, uh, you know, getting a lot of interest from other teams, I could see it. But overall, I just don't think there's going to be a lot of movement, like you said. Yeah, I mean, especially um, since the players need to be in the player pool to be traded. The teams that are going to be adding things at the deadline presumably are going to be the teams that we think are going to be good, and those teams aren't really carrying prospects on their player pool. So just, I mean... Well, can't they do a player-to-be-named-later situation? Yeah, that was the thing. I've seen people bring that up. I haven't really seen that um, answered. I would assume they can, I guess. Um, So I guess that would make it a little bit easier. I mean, I do think there are guys that they would like to trade um, if the right move came up. I mean, J.D. Martinez... Jackie Bradley Jr. seem like the obvious ones with potential free agency down the road. But, yeah, I mean, I think yeah. if they're out of contention, anything is on the table. I think probably Bogart's and Devers would be the only two that are really, really safe. The more I think about it, though, I just don't think you would get a lot for J.D. Martinez in this market. And I really like the idea of him finishing out his contract here now that the marketplace for new contracts is so uncertain. I just think his bat adds so much to the lineup that I am more in line with keeping him and building around him over the next couple of years than I am trading him at this point. I agree, but I think, I mean, if there, if somebody offered you something really nice, like say for some reason the Dodgers just aren't that good this year, the Diamondbacks are playing really well, they look at the standings and they're like, the Dodgers are not going to be this bad again for another like 10 years. Let's take our chance while we have it. Something like that could play out. Maybe somebody gets crazy. But yeah, I think realistically there's probably not a package that I would want to trade J.D. Martinez for this summer. It would have to be for a pretty surefire top 100 prospect. Oh, for sure. To think yeah. About it. yeah, you would have to get something real sexy back. Yeah. Um, one Question Podcast says that's why we stick to one question per episode. I don't care, man. Dude, thanks. <laughs> I guess. Uh, We're a multi-question podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. Uh, Robert Beauford, uh, who do you see having the biggest offensive year for the Red Sox? We sort of talked about this, but... I kind of think JD. Yeah. 
I mean, it's definitely to me. It's definitely JD or Bogarts. Although Devers obviously is in that conversation as well. I'm gonna go Bogarts. Um, I just can't get those back spasms out of my mind with JD. Um, yeah. So I think at this point I'm just kind of going pessimistic just to get surprised so I don't get my hopes too far up. But yeah, I mean, you can't really go wrong with any of those three. I don't think. I think it's interesting that we're both kind of projecting. It seems like a little bit of. Uh, uh, of a regression from from Devers, not that he won't be great, but just that last year he had ninety extra base hits. You know, I don't think we're thinking he's going to be on that pace again. Ah, uh, speak for yourself. I've this is much more about me thinking that Bogarts and Martinez are outstanding. Um, I think that what we saw last year from Devers is what Rafael Devers is. Well, in in that case, then I would argue that what Devers did by having 90 extra base hits last year is more impressive than anything that JD or uh, Xander has done offensively. Well, or at least, I mean, maybe 2018 JD. Is I was going to say 2018 JD is much better than that. Yeah. I, I, th- I think that that's really the only question. I think that Devers well, last year was better than any season. Not by WRC plus. Yeah, but you know, so I mean, that's WRC not WRC plus. Yeah, I think it has its limitations in the fact that like pure power guys um, with huge power numbers tend to be a little bit underrated by WRC+. That's fair, but I think, I guess, I don't know that I agree that that is more valuable than what Bogarts did. I mean, Bogarts had big power too, and also... In base running. Yeah, base running, and also walked 11% of the time. They actually had the same slugging percentage. Bogart's ISO was a little bit higher. They had basically the same season except for the walks. And um, I think Bogart's approach is just a little bit more refined that I feel safer oh, with him. With but, I mean, these guys are just – I mean, they're outstanding. You can take either one. I'm not um, – Yeah, throw JD in that mix too. I mean, all three have yeah. remarkable ceilings. Like JD, I don't know. I don't have his numbers in front of me. I think he had like a 131, something like that, WRC Plus last year. Maybe even better than that, maybe 139. And it was like a terrible year for him. <laughs> That's just who JD was. He, he like didn't hit lefties last yeah, year. Yeah, it was. Or, he had a yeah. very strange season. And he was still yeah. um, one of the better hitters in baseball. I think he was like a top 20 hitter in baseball still. So, um, yeah. Those three guys are studs. Absolutely. Uh, Jeff Milliner says, is why followed by a hand gesture at the rotation too broad? Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> Scott Barlow says, can Wake come back and throw knuckleballs? Uh, is this Scott Barlow from the um, from the, the Royals? Is it, isn't Scott Barlow a major leaguer? Is he? I'm not up on my Royals <laughs> roster. I want to say Scott, Scott Barlow is the name of a major leaguer who plays for the Royals. But, um, you know, I, I do kind of miss Wake. Uh, while I was doing all my research on the all-time Red Sox roster series that I just finished up, um, it was just remarkable to see where Wake ranks on a lot of these uh, innings pitch lists and wins lists and all these lists of longevity for pitching for the Red Sox and like Wake was such a part of my childhood as a Red Sox fan too and into even my adulthood as a Red Sox fan so I do really miss Wake he was awesome every single game I went to Tim Wakefield's pitching just always worked (laughs) out that I saw Tim Wakefield pitch I'm pretty sure he pitched every other day for about 15 years so that sucks (laughs) and felt like that I mean I think he could physically I think he could come back and throw knuckleball I mean we all know knuckleballers can throw forever yeah. So, yeah, throw him out there. I mean, why not? Like, Ryan Weber and Brian Johnson give Wake a shot. I'd love Wake right now. So Frank Cooney asks, why isn't Mike Schwarren with the big club? If you're wondering the state of the Red Sox pitching staff, you're wondering why Mike Schwarren is not with the big club. I mean, the Maryland legend, right? He's just... Uh, he's, he was he's the not, ace um, of the Terps. Yeah, he's... He's kind of an average-ish pitcher. Um, he's he's not. He let's just put it this way: all of the guys who we think can make the back end of the bullpen, he's not better than those guys right now. There's not a clear. I mean, he might be, but he's not clearly yeah. better than those guys right now. He's he's in that mix. Um, he just doesn't have 
the major league time that some of the other guys will have. Uh, but he'll get his chance, and he'll he's the hope for him is to be sort of that two or three inning long reliever. Um, I was high on Schworn a couple of years ago. I've come pretty far down, but yeah, he'll get his chances here at some point. I would think. A lot of sliders. Der, what? Der four off his of ZL. I have no idea what's going on there. Um, and it's lost in nippies. Lost in nippies. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Moving on. Is there any hope for the rotation to not sink ship? Uh, yeah. I mean, okay. Let me paint the scenario in which the, the ship does not sink. Eduardo Rodriguez comes back, and he is awesome and stretched out right away in, like, going very long, um, maybe within, like, one or two turns of the rotation. Um, so if we get last year's Eddie, maybe even a step forward in consistency, Nathan Eovaldi pitches like he did down the stretch in 2018. Uh, Martin Perez pitches like he did uh, in the inter-squad game yesterday when he looked actually good, against or prospects. two days ago, uh, against prospects, yes. Uh, and and Ryan Weber pitches to like a four ERA, uh, and the offense does what it's supposed to, then yeah, that's like a playoff team. Sure. So, yeah, there's about a 1% chance of all that happening. But there is yeah. a chance. All right. Yeah. Last question comes from just the letter J. If I, I like to imagine that his name is J, by the way, like uh, Homer Simpson's <laughs> middle name, Homer J. Simpson, and he moves the bush and it's just J A Y. Um, <laughs> if Avaldi comes back in great form and has a couple excellent outings, do you think he keeps the top spot at the ro- top of the rotation? I don't really know what that means, but um, maybe does that mean like, for like next does year? He main- like, does he maintain ace status over Eddie? Is that what he is? I guess I don't really know that that's a distinction that matters. Yeah, I think there's a way that he could be as good as Eddie was last year. I guess this year. I guess put it this way: um, Is there a scenario? We go back to your pie-in-the-sky scenario. Is there a scenario where you see the Red Sox making the playoffs and Evaldi gets the ball for game one if both him and Rodriguez are healthy? I could see that. Yeah, I, could, I think that's it's, possible, too. I would probably put it at less than 50%, um, but I, it's certainly not possible. So as you were saying that percentage, I was thinking in my head 20% of that happening. I just think Eduardo Rodriguez has so many more weapons um, to go to and has shown consistency, even though consistency and Erod are yeah, not quite the things that you'd put uh, there. But at the end of the year, and there was this really cool poll that um, the Athletic did uh, across the league trying to figure out who people in and around the game think of as aces. And one of the comments on Eddie, who was in the top 25 pitchers on that list, uh, in the game, someone just said, like, yeah, it's inconsistent at times, but essentially I'm paraphrasing here, but at the end of the year, the numbers always kind of back up that Eddie is pretty damn good. Um, yeah, that's sort so. of, I mean, not not to the same level of performance, but that's sort of Jackie Bradley Jr. Um, inconsistent throughout the year, but every year he kind of adds with the same numbers. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I would probably put the chances for Evaldi a little bit higher, just because, I mean, if he pitches extremely well, it's just, it's insane, we've seen it, if that cutter is working. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would probably maybe put it at like 35 to 40%, so not much of a difference there. Um, but just one last note before we get out of here, um, this just came across the old Twitter machine. Uh, opening day, opening night against the Orioles. Baltimore is starting Tommy Malone. Good lord. Wow. Tommy Malone getting the opening day start with John Mean having some arm problems. So look out for the pitching in that series. Good lord. It's going to be 50 runs scored. Um, but yeah, I think that about does it for this inaugural episode of a show without a name that might just be the same show as the one that's on Sundays. We don't really know yet. But uh, that's it. I think we did okay. Um, yeah. You know the things. You've listened to podcasts before. You know what they say. The rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. All the same things that every podcast host says at the end of the episode. Pretend I just said it much more eloquent, eloquently. 
And uh, we will, Jake will be back with you on Sunday, and him and myself will be back with you next week after some actual games have been played. So let's get excited for that. We are just a few days away. Yeah, and follow us on Twitter too. Oh, follow the Over the Monster account at, at Over the Monster. Follow Matt at Matt RY Collins and follow me at Dev Jake because, you know, occasionally uh, I will. I'm very bad at Twitter, but occasionally I will have a good tweet, and Matt has probably many more good tweets than I do. Oh, all of my tweets are good. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's get out of here before we say anything stupid. Bye bye. <laughs>